This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security for June 19th, 2020. Books for learning the basics of cryptography, Zoom backtracks, spies are using light to listen in, an app store controversy develops on the eve of WWDC, and Josh talks about new malware he discovered. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Another week, lots of security news. But before we get into this week's news, I asked you last week to come back with some information, didn't I? You did your homework. Yeah, you wanted to know what book you could look at to get a a sort of an introduction to encryption and cryptography that doesn't go too deep into math. Um, And as you were talking, as you were asking that question, the the before you got to the without getting too deep into math, I immediately thought, oh yeah, of course, Bruce Schneier's book Applied Cryptography. But then you said, that's got math. (laughs) It's got (laughs) yeah quite a bit more math than probably most people would want to read. So um, I dug around a little bit and found another book uh, called Serious Cryptography, A Practical Introduction to Modern Encryption. And uh, it it looks uh, pretty interesting, and it has a foreword from a uh, cryptographer that uh, I'm familiar with. And it seemed like that would be a good book to to recommend for people who want to uh, to take a look at. You can get a free sample of the book uh, if you uh, check out our Amazon link that we'll have in the show notes. I noticed that there's a chapter about the Diffie-Hellman protocol. And the only reason I mentioned that is because Whitfield Diffie went to the same high school as I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, we we discussed that once when uh, I was talking about Diffie um, at the cryptography panel at RSA conference. Yeah. I, I don't know if he was in the same year as me, but I just know that my high school's uh, Wikipedia page uh, lists him as a famous alumni. Let's see, he was born in 1944, so he's a bit older than me. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure he's older than you, Kirk. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's the first book. And then the one you mentioned by Bruce Schneier has lots of math. Yeah, it has more math, but uh, it, it does have a lot of really um, interesting details. And, and again, this is something that, uh, I mean – you asked just about any cryptographer and this is the book they'll recommend. So um, it is a, it is a very well-known author and there's a lot of good information in it. It just gets a lot more technical as all. What I noticed is when browsing it on Amazon is each chapter talks about some important element. So for example, key management or different types of algorithms. And there's always a background and a description before it gets complicated. So I think you could read maybe a third of the book and understand everything if you don't want to deal with the math. These are both good books, and we'll, we'll have a link to both of those in the show notes. And I found a book that's a lot simpler, um, and it might be something for people who don't really want any of the math and complex stuff. It's called Cryptography, a Very Short Introduction. It's uh, from a series uh, published by Oxford University Press called A Very Short Introduction. The books are all 160 pages long, and it's really, really just the basics. It'll give you the concepts, and it really starts out with the, the earliest concepts of cryptography, just when you're um, substituting one letter for another. 
you know, ROT13, as we know, the original method for hiding spoilers in Usenet newsgroups. Yeah, ROT13 is kind of funny because it's not really encryption. It's just sort of like uh, enciphering, I guess. It's, it's Obfuscation. It's obfuscation. It's a simple letter substitution, taking one letter and rotating 13 characters out of the 26-character alphabet, which, of course, is where the joke comes from that you can just use ROT26 because then <laughs> you're rotating 26 characters and ending up at where you started. <laughs> so it's not really obfuscating at all. No, but it was useful back in the day on news groups. If you were talking about a TV show and you didn't want to spoil what happened in an episode, your news readers would, could automatically convert your text into ROT13, like spoiler here, and then um, people could read the posts and not see immediately, unless they read so much in ROT13 that their <laughs> brains could make the, the, the change automatically. But yes, if anyone does want to learn more about cryptography, those are three options, um, varying levels of complexity. I think it's it's actually kind of important to understand cryptography these days because we depend on it so much. It's not like you're going to sit down with the code that your bank uses to encrypt your transactions in Safari, etc. But understanding why it works the way it does, I, I think it gives more power to computer users to be aware. And also, it can reassure you when you see that um, 256-bit encryption is something that would take like quantum computers to crack, you can feel more secure that when you've encrypted something on your Mac, say with FileVault, you can be more confident that it's going to be reliable. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and of course, all of this really does depend on using the right types of encryption, because if you had a very weak protocol, uh, 256 bits doesn't mean a lot. But if you've got the right protocol, one that is very effective and has been time tested and all that and vetted by cryptographers, then, you know, 256 bit might not be so bad. Right. And in fact, I remember when we were talking about Zoom and their end to end encryption, um, initially they weren't using very strong encryption, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it wasn't quite up to snuff. And, you know, we've had a lot of issues with Zoom lately. That's why we have our special feature, Zoom Zingers. Yes, yeah, so this week we actually have two Zoom Zingers. Um, the first one, and we reported this recently, that Zoom had said that they would not offer end-to-end -end encryption for free accounts. Well, so Zoom did a 180 on encryption plans. We'll bring it to all users, including free accounts in July. Every time Zoom makes a U-turn like this, I'm thinking, I, I just don't get it. You can't, you can't do this all the time when people complain. It's, it's kind of funny from the pers from an outsider's perspective, right? Looking at Zoom, because it seems like a lot of these big decisions that they're making, they they actually make an announcement. They put their foot down. They say, "This is the decision that we've made. That here's how we're going to proceed." And then they get so much backlash that they kind of just roll over and say, oh, okay, well, we're going to do the exact opposite of what we just said we're going to do. <laughs> it sort of implies that they don't really know what they're doing and they're just, you know, kind of taking a stab in the dark and saying, okay, well, I think this is what we should do. Well, our second Zoom Zinger, and this is actually a week old, this came out shortly after we recorded the last episode, where we mentioned how they had deleted some accounts of Chinese activists in the U.S., on the request of the Chinese government. Well, that's another Zoom oops. Um, we'll link to a blog post where they say, improving our policies as we continue to enable global collaboration. Uh, they've reinstated the accounts uh, for these people. And going forward, they say, we will have a new process for handling similar situations. 
Yeah. So basically they did a complete 180 on this one as well. <laughs> they they got a lot of flack and they decided, oh, yeah, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't have done it that way after all. So I guess we'll do the exact opposite in the future. So on the one hand, it's a company that's listening to users, right? And thinking if if users are really unhappy, they're reacting. On the other hand, there's no one in the company who's saying maybe we shouldn't do this in the first place because we'll look really dumb um, because we've had to turn around so many times. Yeah, you would think that some executive at the company would would kind of get things and kind of generally understand like and how anticipate how people are going to react to some of these decisions that they're making. Okay, so here's a story that I really like, and, and this came out last Friday. Spies can eavesdrop by watching a light bulb's vibration. The so-called lamp phone technique allows for real-time listening in on a room that's hundreds of feet away. I like this kind of stuff because this is cool, and it, like, it makes me think we can't be safe without a Faraday cage now. We have to blacken all our windows. We have to be in some sort of protective room like the Cone of Silence from Get Smart, which wasn't as ridiculous as, as we thought back then. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because looking back on things like that, you, you kind of uh, you think you think, oh, that's crazy spy stuff. And now it's kind of like, well, actually, they kind of had the right idea <laughs> because Dick Tracy watch phone, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. You yeah. forgot about that. We don't have the shoe phone yet from Get Smart, but we've yeah. got the watch phone. Well, we're not um, really but, uh, doing video calls on our watches yet, but it's it, it could get there. All, all it would take is to put a little camera in the Apple Watch and, you know, yeah. you, you could really have a Dick Tracy phone. But I just love this idea that – so they put a series of telescopes about 80 feet away from a target office's light bulb. And they used a – they specify it's a Thor Labs PDA-100A2 electrical optical sensor. I guess the A1 wasn't good enough. And they <laughs> used an analog to digital converter to convert the electrical signals from the sensor to digital information. So what's interesting here for me is that Everything can be converted from analog to digital or from digital to analog. We see this at camera sensors that convert light. Here we see vibrations that are converted to sound, that it's converted to digital so it can be processed more easily. I, I, just, I just love this. I mean, nothing is safe anymore. What's most fascinating to me is when they actually show what this looks like. They've got a couple of photographs uh, you know, that are kind of diagrammed. They show, okay, here's the victim's room in this hotel across the street. And we're way over here with our cameras. And, you know, we, from this far away, that's how we can tell. And, and these are telescopes. On. These aren't binoculars. Yeah. These are really far. Well, 80 feet. Okay, but still. Right. Yeah. They're mounted on a tripod. And yeah, it's cool. I mean, there, there's a lot of technologies that are similar to this um, that we've learned about before that um, some, uh, for example, U.S. intelligence agencies have used. Um, and uh, this is yet another way that somebody can spy on you from quite a distance. It's pretty clever and uh, a little concerning, but you know, I mean, the average person really does not need to worry about being spied on in this kind of way, at least. No, but if you're in an office someplace, someone across the street could be watching you. Now, obviously, this doesn't work in every kind of light bulb, and they say that there are limitations. They don't know if it could work in a, a, a bulb mounted in a fixed lamp because it worked with hanging light bulbs. It might not work 
probably doesn't work with fluorescent lights or even LED lights. So I'm not sure about that. But what I did like is that they, the article says they were able to reconstruct recordings of the sounds inside the room with remarkable fidelity. They showed, for instance, they could reproduce an audible snippet of a speech from President Donald Trump well enough for it to be transcribed by Google's cloud speech API. Wow. And they generated a recording of the Beatles' Let It Be that was clear enough that Shazam could recognize it. Wow, that's actually incredibly impressive. Yeah, the fact that they can do that with music, with the with the range of, of sounds that you get in music beyond speech, that's actually quite impressive. Anyway, we're going to take a break because you need to, like, um, get your energy up. You've been really busy this week tackling new malware. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows... Be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code podcast 20 at checkout to save 40%. That's podcast 20 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, before we get to the new malware that Josh has found, um, there's a bit of a kerfuffle in the Apple world in the past couple of days. A company called Basecamp that makes a project management software suite um, launched a new email service called Hey, H-E-Y. You know, kind of like Hey Siri, kind of. I guess that's how they did it. So this uses, um, it's a the service that they host the email and they have a different way of approaching email. So you have to use their apps for it. It's not IMAP. They have a Mac app that you can get from their website and they had an iOS app that was initially approved by the app store. Then when they submitted some bug fixes, it was rejected. And the reason cited was that if you have an app that works with a paid service, you have to offer that paid service through an in-app purchase in the app, and they didn't want to do that. Now, their service costs $99 a year, and you can sign up on their website, but you can't sign up within the app because they don't want to pay Apple for this. This is a really complex issue because it involves the, a company complaining about the, the cut that Apple gets, the 30%. It's 30% of, for the first year of subscriptions and 15% after that. But it's also this issue of approval. Why was it approved in the first place and then rejected? Uh, the only thing that changed in the second version was some bug fixes. And this comes just right before the WWDC, which starts on Monday. 
Yeah, it's so where do we start with this? I think one of the things that we should point out is that there have been a lot of issues similar to this over the, you know, ever since really the App Store launched on iOS. Uh, this, this has kind of always been a problem that, you know, in addition to Apple having some algorithms and things that sort of assess apps and make sure they're not using private application programming interfaces and things that they're not supposed to be doing, there's also human reviewers and they have a set of rules they're supposed to follow. And, uh, you know, so they, they look through the rules, they look at the app and they make a determination of, yeah, I think this, this is okay. Or no, I kind of feel like this, you know, falls under that category and it shouldn't be approved. And so this does happen from time to time. Um, it happens with a lot of very well-known developers where they have a version of the app that totally gets approved. Not a problem. The very next uh, update may be a very minor bug fix update. And now all of a sudden a different reviewer looks at it or maybe even the same reviewer with a different lens. You don't, you don't really know who's reviewing your apps. And then it gets rejected for some reason that uh, wasn't a problem before apparently, but now all of a sudden is. And so that's, that's kind of what seems like happened here with the first version being accepted and a follow-up version being rejected. But there's a lot of other complicated issues going on here, as you mentioned. Um, There's also the issue of having to tell users go sign up for this somewhere else or implicitly, you can't really even officially tell users to go sign up somewhere else because Apple doesn't like that. That's against their policy. Um, so you have to sort of just have a login screen and just imply that you must already have an account before you come to this app. But then it sounds like what Apple was saying here is that you can't even do that. That's not even okay anymore. And that's one of the things that people are getting very upset about. Yeah. And there's a distinction between what Apple claims are player apps like Netflix and say Audible or the Kindle app and how they work. Now, you may know that you can't buy Kindle books through the Kindle app or you can't buy Audible books through the Audible app. Um, You can, I think, buy Netflix subscriptions. Uh, Spotify sells subscriptions through their app, but they raise the price 30%. Um, to compensate for Apple's cut, which is a bit dishonest because it's 30% the first year and 15% the second year. So you're really a sucker if you buy Spotify through Apple's App Store. I think there's a lot of vague things. There are other companies that um, have email clients that don't have free services, like there's FastMail, which isn't free. Um, Gmail, on the other hand, has apps available in the iOS App Store. They have both free and paid services. Outlook is there, which is part of uh, you could have a free Outlook.com address, or you could be using, um, what is it called? Office 365 now? They changed the name, didn't they? Is that the latest name? It's hard yeah. to remember. So this this is a complicated story, and it's further complicated by the fact that um, one of the executives, I think the CTO of Basecamp, testified in Congress sometime last year about monopolies having to do with Apple Pay. And I, I was really interested in the idea of this different way of approaching email, and, and I'm looking forward to maybe getting an invite for it because it's one of those invite things, and maybe by next year I might because they're only issuing like 2,000 accounts a day. But this just raises all kinds of questions about the iOS App Store. We'll have an article on the Mac security blog about it. On the Mac side, you have an option. You can buy from developers or you can buy from the App Store. On the iOS App Store, you don't have that option. 
Um, so while the iOS App Store is really focused on helping users feel comfortable on the developer side, um, I can tell you that there are lots of complaints from people who don't want to speak out because they're afraid that their developer accounts will get shut off. In fact, I saw on Twitter just before we started that some developer was saying, hey, Apple just closed my developer account. They didn't tell me why. There's no one to contact. And it's pretty obscure for developers to get help. Um, Apple is just so big that the, the individual developers don't have individual contacts unless they're very big companies. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. The, as I said, the WWDC starts on Monday. The European Union just announced an antitrust investigation into Apple in part because of the App Store. So all of this, the timing here is very interesting. You, you can't say that these guys from Basecamp aren't milking this for all they can to get extra PR. Well, yeah, obviously, I, I never would have, would have heard about Hey if it hadn't been for this whole thing. So they're definitely um, getting some time in the spotlight. Okay, so you've been busy and you found some new malware. Tell us about it. Yeah. So on Friday last week, um, the day after we recorded and actually the day our ep last episode of the podcast was released, um, I was doing some very innocuous Google searches. In particular, I was looking for the title of one of our YouTube videos uh, in quotation marks. And because I was I was trying to see if I could find uh, sites that had embedded that video um, into their into their site, and uh, what I found was on the second page of the search results up near the top, there was uh, a link that when I clicked on it, um, and of course I, I'm doing this in a private browsing window in an up to date browser and all that kind of stuff, um, but when I clicked on that link, it took me through a whole bunch of redirections. I don't know if you've ever seen this where uh, when you click on a link, sometimes it'll redirect through a whole bunch of different sites and just it'll flash different addresses in the address bar real fast as it goes through this whole chain. And finally, it ended up on a page that um, told me that my flash player was out of date. Well, we know what that means. Uh, hopefully, most of our listeners know what that means. If you don't, it means that uh, someone is trying to scam you and trick you into installing uh, a, a Flash Player update. In particular, I was using a, a Chrome-based browser, which has the Flash Player built in. So th this is a, a very obvious thing in that case to me, because I know the Flash is built into the Chrome browser. And so you should never be getting something that tells you you need to download an update to Flash. Um, because when you update your Chrome browser, Flash Player gets updated as well. So this was clearly a scam page. And uh, and of course, anytime I come across something like this, um, as a malware researcher, <laughs> I go ahead and download it because I want to check and see if that's something that is being detected or if it's something new. And this time I got lucky uh, and it was something that did not have widespread detection um, I uploaded the sample to a website called Virus Total, which um, scans with a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, anti-malware engines from a bunch of different antivirus companies, and it had a zero out of sixty detection rate. Um, so this was a brand new sample, um, brand new in the sense that uh, almost nobody was really detecting this. Certainly, none of none of those engines on on Virus Total. 
So what is what's different about this malware? Is this something we've seen before? Is this a new version of something we've seen? Well, we're detecting the first stage of this as Schleyer. Um, Schleyer is a name that we've given to malware that we first uh, discovered in 2018. And um, the reason it's called Schleyer, it has to do with uh, the SH at the beginning has to do with shell because um, there's uh, a bash shell script that uh, is, is part of this first stage. So... Um, a shell script is basically something that uh, you can uh, double click and it'll open in terminal and run some commands. Uh, and so what they did in this case was they had a very simple shell script with a, an Adobe Flash installer icon pasted onto it. And there were instructions when you downloaded this and mounted the disk image. Um, it, it gave you instructions in that disk image window that told you to right click on this installer. And of course, Matt, most Mac users don't really know what that means to right click, but basically they were telling you to control click on that and click open. And then you would get a dialog box and they wanted you to click open again. Well, what that means is that they're instructing you on how to bypass Apple's protection that's supposed to keep you safe from new malware. Um, because if you had just double clicked on that file, instead of right clicking, going to open and hitting open again, then uh, by double clicking, you would get a dialog box that says you can't open this because it's not from a recognized Apple developer. They effectively tricked users into working around Apple's protection methodology and also, because of another trick that they were doing, they were able to bypass antivirus software, too. And so the second trick is also kind of fun. Um, what they did here was, in this shell script, it wasn't just commands that you could run in a terminal window. They also had, at the end of the script, below the actual script part of it, they had embedded a password-protected zip archive. So basically what that means is that if you had taken the script and you dropped it onto a, a, a utility that could unzip a, a zip file, then it would prompt you for a password and, and allow you to, um, to unzip it if you knew the password. Well, in this case, the shell script contained the password and it just said, start at this line of the script and all the rest of this is a zip file and use this password to decrypt it. So it's using the built-in zip command that you can access in terminal and it's passing the arguments through to uncompress the content in this text file, which is the code that would be in a zip file. Yeah. Exactly. That's so clever. <laughs> so instead of just w a lot of times what you'll see with this kind of fake flash player malware is that they'll just put a, a an Apple signed, you know, with a with an Apple developer account, uh, some malware that's actually signed with a developer account. And it's a Mac app. Usually in this case, they decided to hide it a little bit better and and so that's why they went through this whole extra step of making an encrypted zip file, sticking it inside of another file. And it just makes it harder to initially detect that there's something wrong here. Um, and so um, if you were to actually follow their instructions, right click, open, open. And then what this thing would do is it would install an actual Mac app in a hidden folder on your computer 
And then that hidden Mac app would download the legitimate Flash player <laughs> so that it could basically, you know, for plausible deniability, right? So you could see that, oh, the yeah, Flash player is installing. But it would also check uh, a, you know, malicious server to see what malware or adware of the day that they wanted to serve up onto you, onto your computer. So what's interesting is that you found this in Google search results, not just going to some random website that had been corrupted, right? Um, right. How can, how can we trust Google now? If, because Google has this safe site uh, system, right? And they'll tell you if a site is dangerous. How come they missed the boat on this? Yeah. So there's a number of problems. <laughs> and, and this dates back quite a while, actually. So um, I, I first came across this probably in about 2009, this idea of poisoned search results on Google. And it's something that um, Google can't very easily handle this problem for a number of reasons. For one thing, um, as I mentioned, this was malware that uh, was not widely detected. It basically had, you know, nobody detecting it from that base form just based on a signature, which is pretty much more or less what virus total goes by. Uh, so it's not checking usually like behavioral things and other ways that antivirus software might be able to catch something. But because this was not known malware, even if Google had been scanning that site and looked at all the redirects and and had discovered that the last page seemed to be offering Flash Player, it wouldn't know that that was malware. Um, so that's one of the problems. But aren't aren't those multiple redirects a clue that something's fishy? Yeah, actually, that's a good point. However, um, there's another trick that these web developers are using who run these sites that redirect multiple times. One of the tricks that they do is that they will send you to a different page depending on where you're coming from. And so in this case, if I had gone to that address, if I had gone, you know, copied it from the Google search result, opened a new tab and pasted it, it would not have gone through all those redirects. In fact, I tested this to see whether that was the case. And um, it was only when you clicked on that result in the Google search that it redirected through all these sites. And so what they may have done, maybe when Google was uh, assessing, you know, scraping the site and deciding whether to index it or how to index it, they probably got something very different. In fact, um, they may have gotten something even different from from uh, what I saw just by going directly to that address because they can tell that it's the Google bot that is looking at their site. Right. And so they could shove something completely different and innocuous looking to the Google bot and say, oh, yeah, we're totally safe and fine. Don't worry about us, Google, and turn around and give malware to everybody else. So I've seen a few times in Safari that I'll click a link and it'll you, you'll see, as you said, in the address bar, it changes several times. And then Safari will say, can't load this page because too many redirects. Isn't that like a basic feature of browsers to protect against that sort of thing? It can be and it should be. <laughs> um, but it's not always the case that uh, that your browser will will block this kind of behavior. The problem is that there are legitimate reasons to have redirects. Legitimate but annoying ad servers often have multiple redirects. So you click on an ad, it's going to take you to one server, then another, to quantify information, then another, then finally to the page. 
serving up the ad, the website, and it can be legitimate. Sometimes this is just the way it works for ad servers. This is really interesting and really complex. You've got a very long and detailed article on the Intego Mac security blog called New Mac Malware Reveals Google Searches Can Be Unsafe. We'll link to it in the show notes. Next week is WWDC, so we're going to be back and we're going to talk about, well, we don't know what's going to be new. Um, Apple's certainly going to unveil some of the new features of the coming operating systems. Maybe we'll see some new Apple products. I'm really looking forward to that iMac kind of built like a Mac Pro because I really do need to upgrade my iMac soon. So we'll know next week if I'm going to get one. Until then, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>